80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Did we have the appropriate response when a branch of government could have been and at times was compromised? We had our elected leaders get on national TV and our chief of police was fired and the House and the Senate Sergeant of Arms was fired. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from one of the classic institutions in D.C. Since 1950, the Capitol Hill Club has been a repository of great social escapism from Congress. It is the Republican Club of Capitol Hill, and since 1971 has had one of the best locations in D.C., literally across from Cap South Metro and the House office buildings. But, you know, it's more than just a social club. With its two restaurants, it's now two bars, and 14 meeting rooms. I mean, not to mention the location, which is just a five-minute vote away from the House floor. This has become a great place for people to have events. Obviously, there are fundraisers here. In fact, we're here during the recess ahead of the midterm, and I saw them setting up for one upstairs in the Eisenhower room. Now, before half of you get all ginned up, you know this is a nonpartisan podcast, so <laughs> if you're interested in being a guest or hosting an episode at the Democrat Club, just email 80proofpolitics at gmail.com, and I'll be there in a heartbeat. I'm here today with my guest, Jen Dalby. Jen, welcome so much to 80 Proof Politics. Cheers. Great to be here. Glad to have you. I have said for years that D.C. thrives on very full resumes. <laughs> and you have a, one of the classic D.C. resumes. You've been yep. on the Hill, off the Hill, personal offices, committee offices. You've been with corporate offices here in town. You've done government affairs. But I want you to start by telling us what you're doing now, because you are chief of staff for a company called Indigov. Tell us what that is. Yes, thanks, Bill. Indigov is a government tech startup company. We're based in D.C., but we're a fully remote company. We've got engineers and designers um, and all sorts of different folks throughout the country. And the company did what was so badly needed was they came up with a better system to handle constituent communications. And those of us that are used to the Hill and have have been on the Hill at some point, maybe as an intern or a different position, remembers taking those calls from constituents, logging that email, and probably having a system that had not been upgraded in several decades. 
we desperately needed new technology. And when I was at staff director of House Administration Committee, it was a priority that we had to, the, the House needed to scale technology-wise like the rest of the country needed to. And that was not happening for a lot of reasons and a lot of barriers. And um, I think it's great. There's companies like Indigov. Its mission is to improve democratic institutions. And we do three basic things. We help elected officials manage the incoming mail. We have excellent systems so that um, elected officials can send proactive mails. Uh, emails and communications, I, I think it's different, right? We think of, you know, just in the last month, flooding and hurricanes oh, yeah. and, and different things that have occurred. People have an expectation that their government is going to communicate with them. And I remind people that sometimes it's a luxury to sit at home and write your elected official of whatever your beef of the day is. And that's important, and people should be able to do it. But there is a role and an obligation for elected officials to have technology and to use that and proactively say, you know, you need to evacuate this area or here are resources if your home was flooded or what have you. So we, we do the proactive in addition to, to having a good platform to respond. So you're talking about a management solution. Absolutely. For government officials to reach out to their constituents. Mm -hmm. So give us some examples of how, without that solution, Members of Congress, for instance, yes. would respond or interact with constituents on a, on a typical basis. How they would without the platform? Yeah. Yeah. I think that we're not tracking. I think the platform, I know the platform allows the tracking of information in a very helpful way so that we know, okay, Bill has requested a meeting with the congressman. I'm looking up here. Gosh, it looks like he has sent 10 letters about this issue he's having with Veterans Affairs. And it's not a casework issue, but gosh, this would be a really good bill idea. So when we go to meet with him, we're going to be prepared for that meeting as opposed to not tracking any past communications that people have had with their member. And so that's it's valuable. A, like a bit like a CRM. Yes, right? it's okay. exactly what that is. So, Got it. Um, yeah. Your podcast host is very tech-savvy, I have learned. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, what can I say? Uh, this is not, we're not just talking about the federal government, though, are we? You, you were, this, Indigov is at all levels Yes. government. What Congress was winning at was we might not have had the best constituent management system, but we know we needed one. We knew with 700,000 people roughly in a district that you have to have a system and the spreadsheet is not going to work. And that's where we started. One, we wanted to get security approvals. If you can get approval to operate at the highest level of government, that gives a lot of folks on the city and county level a lot of peace of mind that this is a solid system and their data is going to be secure and their communication. So we started with Congress because Congress at least knew they needed one. And now we are very proud that we're replacing spreadsheets. <laughs> mm. And um, I think Microsoft's still going to be fine as Indigov <laughs> grows, but we are replacing a lot of Excel spreadsheets. And we're providing functions that traditionally elected representatives on the state and local level wanted to do, and they just didn't have the tools to do it. So we're in several state legislatures. We have several governors, a few attorney generals. We're reaching out into city council folks and counties. So what does it take to be a vendor to something like the House of Representatives? We have to figure out a way to introduce private sector technology to elected officials. And they should have the same access to technology as any new CEO walking into any businesses. Yeah. And until they're at that level, we've really failed. And there's always that hesitancy with vendors, and we really need to be viewed as partners.
Mm-hmm. If you ask me how I would like to describe Indigo, we're a partner with the house that's providing the most innovative technology. And there's a check on that technology to ensure that it's the most secure. And I assume there's a difference in that process between someone who sells and someone just makes their product available. Or is it, you still have to go through that vetting regardless of whether or not you sell to the public, sell to a member. I mean, I assume vendors yes. come all the time and say, hey, we just want to put this up here. Yeah. No. For, for staff to use. Yeah. And you have to go through. And, and we do do a good job. You have to be FedRAMP compliant and meet a lot of security protocols, too. Stick around to find out the difference between proactive and responsive communications and exactly why how you communicate is so important in this town. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcasts from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. You have a legal background, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Much like me, you rarely, if ever, use it. Yes. I'm told. My former boss calls me a fake attorney now because <laughs> uh, I am. <laughs> I retired. I'm a retired attorney. So. I'd like to say I'm a reformed attorney and, <laughs> and reformed go. lobbyist on top of that. <laughs> but you've also spent a lot of time in the communications side of operations up here. Yes. Isn't that right? Yes. I mean, communications is so important to representative government at all levels, but. There's a unique aspect I have found to communications within Congress. Absolutely. Tell me about some of the things, how you applied communications to the various jobs that you had. It's interesting because I often think that lawyers and press secretaries are probably two ends of the spectrum and two very different skill sets. But the legal training that I had really, I think especially in this time period, Um, helped me have discipline in our communications. And I I challenge chiefs that I mentor, are you making progress or are you making noise? And there's a lot of different variations of of that, right? And what is the metric of your success? And I think sometimes our metrics are off. How so? What do you mean by that? You know, did you do a social media post that had a lot of likes? That Getting likes and shares in itself is not helpful, and it is a tactic. It is not a strategy if it doesn't fit with the long-term narrative. And I always approached communications from the standpoint of what were the two or three things that my boss could leave office and people in that district would remember him for, and it was because they remembered him for something that we did versus something negative that Good. came out in the press or what Great have you. advice for anyone. And we had a lot of criteria in our office for what we were going to do and what we are going to talk about. Was it a district issue? Was it an issue that affected a committee? Or was it a legacy issue that Mr. Davis or the other members I worked for cared about? 
and if you look at it from that perspective and you have criteria of what you're going to do and talk about, it drives a, a more disciplined strategy. So you're not waking up every day trying to figure out what tweet or social media post you're going to do. You have a long-term strategy. I think I mean, the, you still have to be prepared to react to the news of the day. Absolutely. You yeah. have to walk and chew gum. But no matter what the news of the day is, it's not going to take you off track of what that long-term objective is. And I see folks kind of getting off track sometimes. It was interesting, too, that I was in a committee because when you start doing communications for a committee, if you screw up for your boss, that is unfortunate and has repercussions. If you screw up for your own conference, sometimes you don't come back from that. I've heard you say that there's a difference between proactive and responsive communications. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. If you think about who emails you and who calls the office and you look at that from a very data-driven way with metrics, you will find most likely that you're communicating with a very small percentage of the district. And I'm a mom, and I think moms are busy. (laughs) I know I am. I'm a single mom. I'm, I'm even more busy some days. And I think of my friends and people like me who probably don't have the time to write their congressperson. Sometimes that becomes a luxury that not everybody has. But people care about what's happening in their government, and it's really important that we don't just do responsive communications, but um, proactive ones as well. Let's do talk about your background a bit here, because you've had, as I said at the outset, kind of the classic D.C. resume experience, and you've, you've all the way from being a legislative assistant. Was that your first job in town? Intern. You started as an intern. Intern. Started at the very bottom. Very good. For a house member. For a house member. Okay. From my home state. Uh, that's a good good entree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then you worked for committees. Yes. You were at Ag Committee. Ag Committee. You were the subcommittee on the Constitution yes. and then chief of staff yes. for the House Administration yes. Committee. Yeah. I, uh, I'm really proud that I got to see both sides of the operation, so to speak, and what it was like to be at a committee and write bills, and I wrote bills, of course, with the help of Ledge Council, who is our experts on the Hill, oh, yeah. that, that um, it, it really is a practice that requires an apprenticeship, and it's a huge skill to be able to write bills that, that then become part of the U.S. Code. But I was counsel for some committees, and then I was chief of staff, and then I ran a committee, and... Um, and I went off the hill, as you mentioned earlier, too. And all of those experiences really made me a better staffer to have that different perspective. And yeah. I think that's important. If we have too many committee staff that don't have personal office experience, we have too many personal office staff that don't understand how committees work, um, the place doesn't work as well. And I felt like I had that kind of triangle of experience that hopefully um, led me to be a more thoughtful leader and understanding of the impact of what we were doing and when we talk about things that you do that you never think will transfer i was in charge of the franking commission it fell within the jurisdiction of <laughs> okay, the committee hold on, hold on. sidebar <laughs> sidebar yes explain the franking commission explain franking commission and the concept of franking so the frank is this very misunderstood idea that your member of congress can use the mail system to communicate and um it comes out of a member's budget, but with the ability to communicate and have that mail paid for, 
come some obligations, yeah. right? And so there are franking rules, kind of rules of the road. I say, let's make sure everybody has good manners. So we try to codify good manners in Congress, which is really hard to do. But the idea that you can't send campaign email, right. you can't disparage your opponent. We don't allow folks to send communications right before the elections. Every piece of mail is approved by Republicans and Democrats when it reaches a certain threshold, well, the Franking Commission would kick in. And one of the things I did when I came down to the committee that oversaw the Franking Commission was update its regulations. And I had a great Democratic counterpart who wanted to do it with me. You mentioned instincts a second ago. How many people come to a first-time ever staff job on Capitol Hill with the requisite communication skills? Oh, gosh. <laughs> a percentage, do you think? I would say um, maybe a fourth. Well, that's higher so, than I would have expected. Yes, I think we are getting better at our institutions of teaching writing. Okay, yeah, good. Glad um, to hear that. Part of, I, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah, I, I really see that being an emphasis. I also tell people, too, Capitol Hill can't be your first job. This is not the, the you know, the um, Dairy Queen or the McDonald's or the pool concession stand, that needs to be your first job. And so hopefully at some point their education um, provided them with some written communication skills, and those oral communication skills came from some experiences. On that same note, tell me about the House of Representatives Communication Standards Manual. That's the We're going back to the Franking Manual. Okay. The purple book we now called it. Um, We were not evolving... Right? Shocker. Congress was not scaling up the way we needed to with communications. And we really weren't responding to communications from email um, and social media platforms. And when we made another run and we updated the communication standard, that was the most important thing. What time frame were we talking about here? Gosh, so that would have been um, four years ago, three years ago. Okay, still fresh then. Yes, like so many of our documents in Congress, they need to be living documents. Yeah. And members and committees need to constantly go back and revisit those and and shape those up because there's a few things even four years down the road now I would have done differently. What's the executive summary now? As opposed to when you you did it four years ago. The executive summary is no one's measuring pictures anymore. We were literally had rulers on the desk and we were managing – pictures and we tried to empower members more um, in their communications uh, with more disclosure so what we did is we i'm still getting my (laughs) head wrapped around the concept of measuring pictures we were measuring pictures because we were trying to make sure they weren't flashy campaign pieces and what we were doing Uh, is just being in official communications correct we were doing we were too prescriptive and then we had these very long blackout periods that were three months before any election primary in general well, if your primary is early, you had three months before your primary, three months before your general. That's six months of a t- six months of a two-year term that you weren't able to communicate with your constituents. That's a pretty powerful thing for someone to take away from an elected yeah. member, and yeah. it should be but done with the great old caution. theory being that if you were an elected official, if you were communicating right up before the election, that could be an unfair advantage. Correct, and so we we. Um, replicated the Senate rules, which was 60 days, which seemed fair. 90 was getting a bit excessive. When we return, Jen talks about being in the building during the insurrection and just how challenging it was to prepare the Capitol for an inauguration 14 days later. 
let's talk about the House admin for a while. This is, you know, this is a committee that doesn't get a lot of attention until typically right after an election. Correct. Now, yes. What is, what's the jurisdiction, what's the general role of House administration? I am cursed, Bill, because it wasn't supposed to get much um, action at all, which is why I went from being a chief for six years in a 50-50 district to going to a committee that no one heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a promotion to staff director, and it was an amazing opportunity, but it is the smallest committee in the House. And I have visions of drinking cocktails like we are and taking some naps because after six years in a 50-50 district, you need a nap. <laughs> um, what I learned was that we then became one of the most active committees we have jurisdiction over election issues mm -hmm. and we have jurisdiction over operations and over ledge branch operations and so when you have a pandemic when you have a very large election bill when you have a um, somewhat chaotic election cycle and then you have an insurrection all yeah, of those let's, let's just clarify me. here you you were staff director there during the 2020 Correct. election yes i was and the pandemic in the so, pandemic, okay. yes. And there is no handbook for any no, of, of that. No, how could there be? And we thought that we were, um, we had it rough with the pandemic, and um, little did we know things were going to get a little more exciting. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Now, when you say the operations of the house, you mean everything. Absolutely. <clears throat> right? I mean, all the way down to the infamous lottery for house offices. Correct. We have jurisdiction over the, um, the CAO. Um, which is the um, chief accounting officer yes, of the house. Yes, that's who signs your paycheck. That's how you get your health insurance. That's who runs the daycare, the um, all the food service operations, you name it. The CAO runs that. Um, the architect of the Capitol. If you have an issue and your water's not working, <laughs> the member's bathroom is clogged, you want to move a door, your window's jammed, that is the architect of the Capitol. And then if you have a security issue, that is the sergeant of arms. Mm -hmm. The two sergeant of arms with the architect of the Capitol oversee the Capitol Police. Because um, we can only have one police force, but right. we have two chambers. And the clerk of the house, which plays a very important function uh, of running of the house. And the roll call in a million miscellaneous jobs that no one knows. Mm -hmm. So we have that entire aspect yeah. Lobby registration. Yes, she does mind. that. Exactly. Yeah. The clerk here, she does that. And then Library of Congress, Government Printing Office, some aspects of the Smithsonian. So what? let's set 2020 aside. Yes. What happens, or supposed to happen, once a new individual is elected as a new member of Congress? Yes. You guys take over. Or you guys. House admin <laughs> takes yes. over. Yes. Right. So we are... Um, for lack of a better word, you pledge the fraternity sorority of the U.S. Congress, so to speak. We are your new member educators until you get sworn in. And the staff literally serves as ambassadors. And so when you are a new member, you have one staff, and their entire job is to help you in a white glove concierge mm. service type of way to make sure that everything that you need is taken care of as you are staffing up, picking your office, you know, 
get in your plates, get in your voting card, you name it. And the committee is, is the first staff member seat. We put on due member orientation and are the liaison between all of those offices um, and really are the ambassadors of the institution. Yeah. A new member orientation takes place basically over the course of a week. Yeah, so, and, right? and in actually two weeks now, we've expanded really? it. Um, members come the week after the election. Mm-hmm. They usually take a week off for Thanksgiving, and then they come back another week. And we've um, we've really operationalized new member orientation because we expected staff who had other jobs or came from the campaign to do work on behalf of the U.S. government and not get paid. And that was unrealistic. And it was not a realistic view. And sometimes we get really caught up on archaic rules. Well, they're not sworn in or what have you. Well, we can't act like that because yeah. on January 3rd, you're expected to fulfill your responsibilities. Yeah, hit the ground running. So we started a program where members now have transition aides, and you get a designated staff that is on payroll, has an official email, and then helps you um, really get adjusted. Is this a ready. house admin staffer? No, this is okay. whoever. It can be your chief. A lot of times it's the chief or the LD or the district it. director. But the CAO. Somebody personal to the member. Correct. The CAO will allow you now to put one staffer as your designated aide, and they are technically an employee of the CAO. Right. And that really helps because we want to make sure there's not a period where constituents don't have a working congressional office. And we've made huge strides into making sure on swearing in day things are running a lot yeah. smoother than they used to. And then. That newly elected member is going through two weeks of orientation, trying to fill a staff if they haven't already identified people to do that. Yes. they got to figure out where the office is. Yes. they got to figure out where to live, if they're going to live here. Most of them do nowadays, but still a lot of them fly back and forth yep. mm-hmm. or train yep. or if you're on the corridor up here. And then there's all the internal politics going on, too. And I know House Admin doesn't touch any of that, but they, they, at the same time, their head has to be spinning because they've got all these, they're getting hit from the caucuses or the conference yes. to do party election and leadership, leadership stuff and then worry about right their there. committee yeah. assignments and all of that. How does that orientation the House Admin puts together, how does that stick? <laughs> how, how, how do you reinforce <laughs> the things that would make Congress run better? I have a lot of people reach out to me because I have done this kind of obscure job of um, that included new member orientation. Say, well, you know, my company or my organization, we really want to get to know the members. I said, do nothing till February. Mm-hmm. If you want to be effective, do nothing till February. Mm-hmm. And I think what we were doing at times, and I felt this, I was a freshman chief. And so being a freshman chief and then getting to run new member orientation on the Republican side, um, hopefully I brought a lot of experience to the table about what we should and shouldn't do. And one of the biggest things that we talked about is how do we prioritize decisions? This is a tier one, tier two, tier three decision. And everybody has their little fiefdoms, right? Because at some point, unfortunately, there becomes a lot of bureaucracy, right, in the House. It's a huge organization. And so how can you say, no, office so-and-so, I know that you feel like your briefing is the most important thing, but that, that comes in January. Your briefing isn't. So we're very... Um, I think there's always debate between the majority and minority, but we tried really hard to have a tight agenda and to only have members make decisions on issues they absolutely have to and that they're doing it in the timeline that makes sense. And I don't think people had a name for it a few years ago, but there really is decision fatigue for those new members. I love the description. Yeah, yeah, how do we prevent decision fatigue and how do we only force decisions to be made in a time 
that they have to. And sometimes we were throw. I've seen in years past we were just throwing stuff at them. Sure. I think that's the role of the House Admin Committee to really hold off the institution and prioritize for members what needs okay. to be done in the order that it needs to be done. I'd like to ask my guests, what kind of advice would you give to someone just starting on Capitol Hill or someone who is trying to make a career pivot? But let me ask you a slightly different question. Okay. What advice would you give to a new member? Absolutely. A newly elected person. <laughs> I have so many different perspectives, and hopefully my answer gets better the more I'm in D.C. and in these different positions. Um, I would say in 2022, volume does not win, Right. And so if I think about how communications have evolved on the Hill, um, we started out with snail mail and then faxes and then phone calls and then emails. And it was like gold anytime someone would give you an email. If someone called in and you could get their email address for the newsletter, that was amazing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there was these amazing data packages. You could pay, pay for data, which was excellent because email was this really cheap form of communications. And because of that, we And because federal law allows us to send proactive communications differently than the private sector can, we have gone hog wild with volume. And what I will say from the vendor perspective is volume does not win. One, hmm. you're going to have deliverability issues. And email service providers like Gmail, they take very seriously what lands in someone's inbox. Yeah. And if you want to land in someone's well, they're, they're, Yeah. Google's dealing with that right exactly. now. Exactly. A lot of different issues in, yeah. in, in Microsoft and what have you. But from a member perspective, you want to write a communication that does not get marked as spam by your constituents and is valuable enough to them that they're going to open and that you have high open rates and all these metrics that are associated yeah. with email. Because the more that's true, the higher your deliverability is. And so I would say if you're a chief – the last thing you should do is march to your LC and say, I want 10,000 emails in a week. No. What do you have to say? Are you communicating on something that people care about? And are you using that data to deliver a certain message to that family who has a son or daughter going back to school or to the veteran? Or to, um, I mean, you name it. We can parse all kinds of data and make sure that messages are going to people who care about it. But if your metric is numbers in 2022, um, you are probably not giving getting the deliverability that you think you are with your communications. Gosh, having worked through the, the 2016 election, the pandemic, the 2020 election, the January 6th, Throughout your career, looking back now, what would you say has been one of the most, if not the most, challenging thing you've had to deal with? What I would say the most challenging time was between the six and the time period that we physically had to get the Capitol ready to swear in a president. And yeah. we had to do so in a secure way with three branches of government. <sighs> and no one cared if you were Republican or Democrat that day. No one knew who was Republican Democrat. No one cared. It was, are you... Are you for the institution and for this peaceful transition of power? And the institution was very, very fragile. And no matter what your politics were on the 6th, the, the security posture of the House was extremely delicate. We, um, we had our elected leaders get on national TV, and our chief of police was fired, and the House and the Senate sergeant of arms was fired. So our entire security... Um, the senior security staff 
were fired within 24 or 48 hours of January 6th. So regardless of how anyone felt, we had huge change, and that is a lot of change for an institution in the middle of a crisis. And sometimes even if you don't have the leaders that you want or the best leaders, consistency is important. Did we have the appropriate response when a branch of government could have been and at times was compromised? And for days, the National Guard did not have weapons and communication systems. And we put so much pressure on the 2000 Capitol Police Force. But here we had so many Capitol Police that were gone. We still have um, 30 to 40 Capitol Police officers that have still not returned to duty since the 6th. And mm -hmm. I think that should be recognized and their service should be recognized. And so we had a very, very fragile force that a lot of them were physically hurt mentally had been through a, a huge um, ordeal, for again, lack of a better word. And then we had National Guard. And these folks are, are deployed and usually protest floods, natural disasters. And here we were expecting them to protect the first branch. We arrested people at the perimeter every single day. Yep. And that is not covered as well and how we had to put the fencing up and what that perimeter looked like. And then here you had the National Guard soldier from middle America who didn't really understand why they were there. I can't imagine what you had to go through, you and your colleagues, to deal with that inside the perimeter and then have to put on this performance for the rest of the world within 14 days, because that is, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more that that sort of reasonable approach to a peaceful transfer of power is what has kept this democracy together. You've done other things in that regard, though, too. For instance, I noticed that you had done some extensive work with something called the Main Street Caucus. <laughs> Just take a minute and explain what Main Street Caucus is. So when Speaker Ryan became Speaker, after Speaker Boehner had left... We were really, to some extent, governing by caucus, right? And so we had RSC, and then we had the, the fairly new, still, Freedom Caucus. And then we had the old Tuesday group. Mm -hmm. And the old Tuesday group uh, were, were pretty serious, moderate members. And so at times, they were no votes. And there was these members in the middle that were not RSC members, but they weren't necessarily hardcore Tuesday group members. Yeah. And they didn't have a home. And at one point there were 75 of those members. That's a very large yeah. caucus. And um, Speaker Ryan's team deserves the credit of saying there's someone that doesn't have a seat at the table here. And we know there is political organizations and other organizations, but is there a caucus? Can you all caucus? And we said, yeah, we can caucus. And so... We started caucusing, and the staff would meet once a week. The chiefs would meet. The LDs would meet. We would yeah. have people come in. We would circulate letters and legislation, and if you had a good idea that was like-minded policy for the other caucus members, you could get 50 co-sponsors. And when we held our votes, we had distribution list, and um, we really felt like, particularly probably on a lot of amendments too, um, that we pulled 
the conference back to be more representative of where the members were. What was the typical voting profile of a Main Street Caucus member? Sure. Um, it was someone who probably won their district by, you know, between 1 to 10 points, okay. right, who was very focused on economic issues, probably over social issues, and was very interested in finding consensus and acknowledging that when the House passes bills, they don't become law. Mm -hmm. And I think some members of the House forget that. <laughs> and so how can we take up legislation and issues that are important that will have an impact and that have a chance of passing? Yeah. So. Given the direction of the Republican Party in the last four to six years, would is that caucus still 75 people or is it increased or decreased no i think probably if we had listened to that caucus more we would not have lost the majority when we did and those were all the members that lost the majority and what i loved about those members is a lot of times I had the privilege of attending freshman chief meetings or vulnerable meetings or you know leadership always does a good job of convening the chiefs and i would say um you know, my boss isn't any more moderate or conservative on your boss in this issue. He's a realist, and we need some, and he's ready to govern, and we need more members that are ready to govern. I think that's a wonderful perspective and a great place to wrap up this conversation. <laughs> Jen, I want to thank you so much for being a terrific guest here on Any Proof Politics. I, I hope we can come back and do a reprise someday. Thank you. I appreciate it, Bill. Right. It's such a pleasure to join you and to get to be at a club that – uh, means so much. Yeah, well, thank you. And just remember, no matter what you think about the state of current politics, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Thanks for listening. Haiti Proof Politics is brought to you by Evergreen Productions. You can find this and several other fascinating podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known? but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and as a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.